Good morning. I'm Kurt Jernigan. The Old Testament reading today is found in Isaiah chapter 49, verses 14 through 16. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. But can a woman forget her, her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continuously before me. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Susie Jernigan. The New Testament reading is found in Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. (laughs) As for children, obey your parents in the Lord, because it is right. The commandment, honor your father and mother, is the first one, with a promise attached, so that things will go well with you, and you will live for a long time in the land. As for parents, don't provoke your children to anger but raise them with discipline and instruction about the Lord. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Megan Habaker. Please stand for the gospel reading found in Matthew 12, 46 through 50. As Jesus was speaking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. Someone told Jesus, your mother and brothers are outside and they want to speak to you. Jesus asked, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Then he pointed to his disciples and said, Look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to our Lord Christ. You may be seated. We're in week four here of a series called These Four Walls. And the series has been about the relationships Uh, in the house of God, the relationships in the household of faith. And I think it's an interesting thing right on the outset to say this, but in the scriptures in the New Testament, you see Paul taking these household codes, if you will, these household instructions, which, which, by the way, existed in uh, Roman culture. There are other, you can find Roman writings giving household codes of how men and women are to relate and children and parents and things like that. And it's very interesting to see what Paul does. And one of the moves that Paul makes because of Jesus is to redefine the household beyond bloodlines. And that's why our gospel reading showed Jesus saying, who is my father or my mother or my sister or my brothers? It's anyone who does the will of my father. It's Jesus saying, listen, the family of God is thicker than blood. Now, you may have heard the phrase, you may have grown up hearing the phrase, hey, blood is thicker than water, as, as the point being to say your family's relationships are more important than your friendships. But the New Testament would say that your relationships to one another in Christ are actually even stronger than those natural familial relationships. And so we've been exploring over the last few weeks what it means to have these relationships with one another within the wider family of God. And so week one, we talked about friendships. Week two, we talked about finding a spouse. Hallelujah, if you want to. And then thirdly, we talked, last week, we talked about how to have a good marriage. Now, I want to point out this out to you. Each week, we've titled the talk a certain kind of how-to how to have good friends, how to find, how to. The reason we've done this is because this is a little bit like what the wisdom literature in the Old Testament does for us. 
Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. The the, the Old Testament wisdom tradition sets out to give us some accumulated wisdom from real life and says, listen, this is how to do these things. But it also sets in tension with those how-tos some real-life situations. In fact, Proverbs makes it sound rather simplistic, but by the time you get to the other parts of the writings, writings like Job, you say, well, it isn't always that way, is it? And so each week we've tried to say, here's what the scriptures sort of say as the how-to, and then here's the tension that the Bible doesn't hide from us about real life, about how to actually do this. An example of this, again, I've said this each week, but, but I hope you're not tiring of this example, but I had an Old Testament prophet in seminary say, Proverbs says, do these things and life will work out this way. Ecclesiastes says, we did and it didn't. And then Job says, and God, what are you going to do about it? And so this is the way we enter into real life to say, look, here is the wisdom and then here is the reality. And then at the end of it, we're going to make our way toward Jesus because Jesus is the wisdom of God personified. That, that Jesus, in a way, is the culmination of all the stuff that the wisdom tradition was trying to lead toward. Jesus says, I embody it in myself. Both the pain of when things don't work out and the redemption and the hope beyond that pain. So this morning we're going to do kind of something in two parts that really connects with, 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 um, with itself. The first part is how to honor our elders and the second part is how to raise godly children. And if you think about it with our New Testament reading being in Ephesians 6, these two things go together. It's really about how the generations are designed to live together, the older generation and the younger generation. Now, it's no secret that our society places a high premium on youth. We love youthfulness, and so whether it's in the sports world, and maybe for obvious reasons in the sports world, a 36-year-old quarterback like Peyton Manning is just old, but he's about to show the Colts that he's not that old. Had to work that in there. (laughs) And of course, we can think of other examples from maybe the world of entertainment, and everything is... It's about getting younger and younger and younger. And so a 20-year-old performer is better than a 40-year-old performer. And on and on it goes. And then we sort of have, you know, of course, the whole anti-aging industry where we want to work against gravity and time and such. And so we do everything that we can to erase the gray and eliminate the lines. And there's nothing wrong with that per se. But I wonder sometimes if there's something that's deeply afraid, that's deeply um, embedded in us, that is this fear about becoming older because becoming older means becoming irrelevant. And that our culture and our society has said, listen, this is who life is about. Life, the world is about the 20-somethings or the 30-somethings. And anybody beyond that, we're sorry, but there's a spot on the sideline for you. Even if that is what the world and the, our culture says this is not what the Bible has in mind for the family of God. That there is something in here that we've got to recover about honoring our elders and what it might mean to do that. So again, Ephesians 6, verse 1 through 4. As for children, obey your parents in the Lord because this is right. 
The commandment, honor your father and mother, is the first one with a promise attached so that things would go well for you. Which, by the way, I, I think there's not, it, it, there's not a certain magic to this, you know, honor your father and mother so that things may go well with you. If any parent in the room knows you've all had that moment where you're saying to your child, hey, listen, you need to take a nap today because we have this thing tonight and you're going to be out late. And they're like, well, I don't want to take a nap. You're like, trust me, it will go better for you if you take a nap. I don't feel tired, but we're going to be out late tonight for this super fun thing. And if you don't nap, it's actually going to be miserable for all of us. And every time I hear this verse, you know, honor your father, it will go well for you. I think about this. I think about parents saying, you know, it really will work out better if you do. So that things will go well for you and you will live a long time in the land. And then it says, as for parents, don't provoke your children to anger, but raise them with discipline and instruction about the Lord. For all of us, we begin in life with a season of being under somebody else's authority. And depending on how that experience goes is how we learn to relate to authority for the rest of our life, right? That's very often the case. And so if we had parents that were overbearing or that were harsh or that were strict, we sort of maybe develop this timidity that is not healthy or we develop a resentment that is not healthy or somewhere in between that spectrum. And then when we finally grow of age, come of age, and we're, you know, I love that expression, I've come of age now, I no longer need authority. And this is sort of myth that we have that we can throw off all restraints, but I wonder if our time of being under authority is practice for real-life situations. Because don't we find ourselves very often under certain kinds of authority? If you have a job, you're under a boss. And if you're, you know... And I, I read an article recently about um, the differences or the changes with young people entering the workforce. And, and there is this one thing in there that said, you know... Um, a person, you know, a 20-something entering the workforce and the boss says you failed, failed to meet the deadline. And the young employee said, but you didn't remind me. <laughs> and there's sort of this changing of expectations of like, well, it's not my fault. Clearly, it's never my fault. You didn't remind me. And, and one wonders what sort of early going experience prepared us for that sort of expectation with authority. But something weird happens to our thinking about authority when we become Christians. And you saw, you, if you, if you, you know, look at the Reformation years, you see Luther kind of struggling with this as well. Because sometimes he would tell, the, like the peasant revolt, he would tell them, get back down and submit to authority. And other times he would say to the Pope, you're not the boss of me. You know, so you see even the Christian kind of wrestling with what is the proper way to relate to authority. On the one hand, if it's convenient for you, you tell others to submit and be quiet. And on the other hand, if it's not convenient to you, you say, hey, you're not the boss of me. And I want to say to you that freedom in Christ is not a freedom from authority. But really, freedom in Christ is a freedom to serve our authorities as unto the Lord. This is the the move that Paul makes in Ephesians and some of his other letters that is really kind of a radical move. Where else we were maybe used to thinking that, yeah, I'll, I'll submit to my authorities so long as they are good, or I'll honor elders so long as they are wise. But if they're not, I don't owe them anything. I don't even owe them my respect. Now, I do think there is a difference. There is a move from obedience to honor. I think there's a season where you're under authority and it requires a certain kind of obedience. But I do think you move from obedience towards honor. 
But even that move, maybe because of our struggle with authority, is as soon as we're no longer forced to obey, we no longer embrace any attitude or disposition of honor. And so we say, I don't want to honor you. I don't respect you. You've got nothing to teach me. You've got nothing to say. I know. I've got it figured out. I'll do it. I'll do it. And what Paul does is he says, well, (laughs) what if you put Jesus' face on that person? What if you saw your boss as Jesus? And you're like, you don't know my boss. (laughs) And what if you said, what Paul is challenging us to do is to serve and honor, not because they deserve it, but because I am doing this as unto the Lord. And Paul actually makes a few moves a little more radical than that when he says it's really God who's delegating authority to these different spheres that you find authority in, whether it's governing authorities or workplace authorities. And you're thinking, but Paul doesn't know our government. He doesn't. He didn't. You're right. But I got a feeling that Rome's government was quite a bit more strenuous for Christians than ours is. And yet, Paul pushes this. Why obey and honor our elders? In short, I think you could say, basically, for our own good. For our own good, because there is something that they might know that you don't. There's something they might see that you don't see. One of the best things we could be in our whole lives is to be open to correction. One of the best things we could be is to be open to correction. See, if, when, we, when we refuse to be open to correction, we're sort of saying, this level that I, of maturity that I'm, in, I'm at, I'm good with that for the rest of my life. And so if you are good with that, and you say, well, I don't want anybody to speak into my life. I don't need an, uh, an older voice. I don't need wiser people. I don't need anybody to speak into it. I'm good. I'll figure this out. I'll sort of, that's like saying, I am fine with where I'm at. Now, most of you know um, how much I love the outdoors and uh, (laughs) as in I like seeing the outdoors uh, and perhaps sitting in the outdoors Uh, and and there are lots of hiking trails in Colorado and I've been on a handful or so um, though I have hiked Pikes Peak so and I've done the incline both of those things just once and once is enough Um, (laughs) but all of you hikers will know there's a certain kind of foolishness that may, that may sound like bravado, of saying, I am going to explore this mountain, and I don't need the trail. So I don't need the trail. I'm going to explore this mountain. I've got my camelback. I've got my whatever Solomon hiking shoes, my North Face windbreaker, and all these other things that are wickaway shirts from REI's garage sales. I don't know. I mean, all those things. When I first moved here like 13 years ago, I was determined to become Colorado. So I went to REI garage sales. Like I did the whole thing. I bought a two-man tent that you couldn't even, you know, sit up in. It was so narrow. I thought, what? Um, yeah, and I used them once like at the field across from New Life, you know. But, um, <laughs> but there is this foolishness that says, okay, okay, listen, I... I I see this mountain, and I am equipped for it, but I don't need the wisdom of those who have gone before me. You see that, the foolishness of that? A trail is basically the path, the accumulated wisdom of those who have gone before you. 
A trail are those saying, yeah, let me tell you, you don't want to walk up the mountain this way, so we're going to walk up this way. And someone else says, hey, look, someone's come this way, I'm going to walk this way. And then someone else comes behind him and says, hey, there's a, looks like there's a path here. A trail ensures that you don't run into a thicket of your own and find yourself without the tools to handle it. A trail says, I'm going to rely on the aggregated wisdom of the community before me so that I don't make the same mistakes. I remember, um, <laughs> I remember in, my, in my 20s when I was it, just starting into ministry here at New Life, my parents are here. Many of you know this. My parents have moved here from Malaysia. Um, they pastored for about 20 years, and, and they're living with us. So we have three generations in our home right now. There's eight of us, um, four little kids, Holly and I, and then my parents. And, and it's been a wonderful thing. And I, I, I've, I've often thought back to the things I said to my parents in my 20s when I was so sure of how church worked. And so here they are in ministry, and here I am just starting out. And we'd have these conversations about ministry philosophy and say, no, Dad, no, that, that doesn't make any sense. This is how you need to do it, you know. This is the new way, you know. This is how you da-da-da-da-da. And I, I look back at it with embarrassment now because I realize, what did I know? Nothing. And now, not that I'm so much wiser, but I'm wiser than I was then. I'm in my mid-30s and I think, they, they were onto something there. That's really kind of more true. And parents... Or, or, you know, the generation above the younger generation always, has to ha- always have to have this sort of patience that smiles and says, oh, well, yes, that's certainly one way you could do this. May I share what I've learned, <laughs> you know? And you, you realize that there's something <laughs> embarrassing about thinking that you've got it all figured out. But I, I recognize that probably one of the reasons why we shy away from asking an older person their input into our lives is maybe you have a story of a person who's taken that too far, who's tried to be controlling or tried to live their life through you or tried to, you know, and, and I understand that that can cause us to shrink back. But I want to say to you that the opposite of abuse is not to not use something, but to find it in its proper use. And the proper use of authorities and younger people or an older generation and a younger generation, elders and young people, the proper relationship is one where the energy and optimism of youth benefits from the wisdom and knowledge of our elders so that we don't waste the energy of youth on dead-end trails, on paths that lead nowhere, on bridges that aren't going to get us to the places we want to go. So, here's a couple of practical things. And I'm going to address this to the young person because I think you can do this. Number one, ask an elder out. So who's an elder? Someone older than you who's in in church. But here's the thing. Ask them out for coffee. Don't ask them to be your mentor. This is where things get weird. Hi, I'm... Susie, will you mentor me? And then, you, you know, three weeks in, you're like, I don't really want you to mentor me. You know, it's awkward. Just say, hey, can we have coffee? Can we have lunch sometime? I'd love to hear your, your stories, which is number two. Ask them to share their story. Just say, tell me about your life. 
Treat another person's story with a kind of sacredness. Nobody's story is perfect. Now, I'll talk to people who are, who are older, who've raised their kids, whatever, and they'll say, oh, I don't know if I have anything to say to, to young people or young couples or young parents because, boy, I sure, certainly made a mess of things. You know what? None of us have perfect stories. The benefit of your story is not that it is perfect. It is that you've seen God's grace work in the midst of it. Amen? The benefit of sharing your story, we're, we're not looking for iconic saints. We're looking for real men and women who will say, I'll share my story. I'll tell you the detours I took that I didn't think I was going to take. I'll tell you the turns I took that I hope you can avoid. I'll tell you the pitfalls. I'll tell you where the traps are on this trail. And then thirdly, ask them what they wish they would have known at your age. I think it's a great question. Hey, so remember when you were just starting into the workforce and you were trying to find your job? Should I be like just waiting until I find the perfect job or should I get started with what I've got? Those are great questions, aren't they? I meet a lot of young people who say, I just don't know what I should do and there's so many options and so I just sort of am doing nothing. Well, maybe you should find someone who's farther down this road and say, what was it like for you when you were getting started? Did you, I mean, did you kind of, how did you find open doors? Now, incidentally, I do think it can work the other way around, too, where someone in an older generation says to a young person, hey, let me buy you lunch. Nobody's going to turn that down. I mean, I'm looking at Dan O'Brien in the back. Dan, I always pick on you because, you know, you make me go running with you and stuff, which we haven't done in weeks, and I'm totally out of shape. I'm just going to confess it in front of everybody. Okay. (laughs) But a few years ago, Dan said, Glenn, let me buy you lunch. And he started buying me lunch. And he took the sort of you know, uh, subversive approach by asking me questions. And then I got smart and I figured out I should be asking him questions. So tell me about how you and Donna raised your kids and tell me about this and how did you decide what activities to put them in or not put them in and all. But see how he did it was he did it in a way that kind of dignified me. He didn't say, Glenn, let me take you out to lunch. Now I'd like to tell you some things about life. <laughs> he said, well, I'll buy you lunch. Tell me about your family. Tell me about your story. Tell me. And then I, it took me, I was slow, but it took me a while to catch on and say, I should be asking him. It can work that way too. But there's something powerful about the word of our testimony. You heard it last week. Where we just say, look, I'm not here to give a perfect story or a story with a bow on it, but I'm here to give a story of real life and the grace of God at work in real life. Amen? So, to practice that this morning... We're going to take this next half of the verse, which says, how do we raise children? How many of you here in the room are parents? Whether they're babies or, yeah, your parents. Okay, how many of you are parents of children in the home? Even if they're 35 and in the home. No no shame in that. Vivaldi, I heard, lived at home until he was 30. Composed all these great pieces of music because of that. Okay, so didn't they say that at the thing, the symphony? Anyway, okay. Um, So Clay and Sally Clarkson, if you guys would come forward, give them a hand, everybody. This is Clay and Sally. Clay and Sally have been an important voice for Holly and I, and, and over the years, um, they have taught us a lot. And I would, I would say Sally was probably the one who sought Holly out, and then Holly began to seek her out, and, and, um, and just developed a good friendship over the years, and, and, and you've raised four children, correct? Correct. correct. Yes. <laughs> so, should we dive in? Sure. Yeah? Okay. So, yeah, it's on, so you can hold it uh, up there Testing. Testing. There it is. Hi, <laughs> Sally and Claire. And Clay and Sally have a wonderful ministry they've developed over the years about um, family ministry, wholehearted 
parenting and, and discipleship. And Sally, you, you talk a lot about beginning with the end in mind with parenting. What does that mean? Uh, how do you develop a vision for, you, for your home, you know, in the midst of just trying to survive, you know? I started out as a young missionary in communist Eastern Europe a thousand years ago, <laughs> and uh, I was living in Vienna, and we would smuggle Bibles and do all of this interesting uh, stuff, and we had to envision in our minds if, if we were na- never able to go into that country again, if we were kicked out or caught by the secret police, what did we need to do to so build a picture of the kingdom of God, the love of God, how to study the scripture in the lives of the people that we ministered to so that if we left, the ministry would still go on. And so Clay and I were older when we got married, and uh, I had never changed a diaper. Um, you know, I didn't even know. I thought I was very spiritual until I had kids. <laughs> um, you know, the whole process of being a parent over children is uh, God's way of humbling you so that you depend on him more. Um, but I think that for any of you, whether it's raising children or uh, doing a business or uh, developing your life, you have to have in mind the end goal. And as Clay and I uh, were these idealistic young parents, uh, we would say, in the short amount of time that we have, how are we going to incarnate God to our children so that they will know his love? If God is a God of love, then they need to see his love in our home. Mm -hmm. How are we going to live out the principles of the kingdom of God? Because a priority for Clay and me was that we wanted our children to be stewards of the kingdom. So from a very early age, we were saying, I wonder how God's going to use you to change your world. I wonder if you'll be a a musician who will bring glory to God or a writer. I wonder how God's going to use you. And so I think that the most important thing, this is a five-hour answer for in 60 seconds, (laughs) (laughs) but um, is just to really, in any part of life, you have to have the foundation and what you're going to establish as an architect of another life mm. in order to build well. And so... Would you write these things down or journal them? Oh, yeah. Or, we yeah. would meet together, and um, we, we've written a number of books where we wrote about them. But, no, we, we, would, we would meet, uh, like, every six months to a year, depending on how busy we were, and say, how are we doing with our plan? Uh, what is the character quality we're missing? What is this child struggling with? Um, I'm about to die. Can you please get me a maid? I mean, that's, <laughs> um, you know, and it's, it's not a formula. God is a God of variety, so each child was different. Mm-hmm. We didn't fit them into a box. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that we kept wanting to have one more child so we could do it right. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, I'm going to talk in a little bit about what the foundation of influencing discipling children mm-hmm. Is but it's so huge because I mean I we know from our home it's easy to sort of get in, in maintenance mode that you or cruise control and you just want to get by but then all of a sudden they're five or they're six and you're thinking oh oh we need to start thinking about this you know and and I I know you know the Clarksons have encouraged us to do this but Holly and I will try um, once once a year at least once a year maybe twice a year if it's a good year. <laughs> um, to sit down and to say prayerfully, Holy Spirit, will you give us insight into each child? And sometimes we'll ask the Lord to drop a word in our heart for just a one-word thing to say, what is this season about in Sophia's life or in Nora's life? And that's exactly, exactly what you're talking about. Clay, you, you, um, 
you talk a lot about this idea of organic parenting, <laughs> which I imagine we'll all like the sound of that, um, but kind of, you know, non, non-additives, um, but, but, but really using the soil analogy, I mean, preparing the soil of your child's heart, how, how do you do that? How do you, what is that, what's that mean for you? Yeah, I, I'm going to, she was beginning with the end in mind, I'm going to talk about ending with the middle in mind, um, because when I was writing this, my book, uh, Heartfelt Discipline, uh, what, what I found fascinating is there's really not a whole lot of specific practical instruction in Scripture on what to do with young children. Yeah. Uh, specifically, you know, do this, don't do that. So, uh, and so I'm always trying to be alert to uh, Scriptures that will help, help us in that area because as I looked back, I'm kind of a rules guy, but we never, never found the rules, never, you know, could, could kind of make that happen. What was it we did? that really uh, raised our children to be godly spiritual kids. They're all out of the house now following, following the Lord. And this uh, funny place I found some insight was from the parable of the sower. And uh, interestingly, without going through the whole thing, when you know, there's the, the, the uh, uh, packed ground, the thorny ground, the rocky ground, when you get to the good soil, Jesus says when he's explaining it that the seed that fell on the good soil... Uh, which what is good soil? It was prepared soil. So that was soil that had been uh, loosened, had been tilled, had been cleared. And so the seed that fell on that soil uh, fell in a good and noble heart. And those two words very generally just really mean good and good. It's kind of an ethical goodness and an aesthetical goodness, beauty and truth kind of thing. And, uh, and, he, and, and he said that, that these, these will have an, a, be a fruitful and abundant uh, crop from those. And I thought, well, that's what I want with my children. I want them, whatever, whenever the seed of the gospel falls there, I want it to uh, fall in, in ground that's good soil. And uh, what's interesting to me about that verse is that I, I backed off for him and says, well, well, where did the good soil come from? This is before the seed of the gospel has fallen there. So, um, and... I thought the good soil came from, I think, uh, uh, raise, you know, uh, giving, giving a child values for all of God's goodness. And that's not a, a rule-based kind of thing you can do or structure or anything. It's a, it's a living, life-oriented sort of deal. And that's where I started thinking about organic parenting is that what we were doing as parents, as I was looking back now and saying, what did, what did work? Why did our kids turn out this way? Um, it was all of the the more natural things that we did. We brought the organics, the living things, into the life of our home, brought the life of, of uh, God into our home. And it's interesting, you can look at the life of Timothy, and when Paul says uh, from, you know, he's talking about Timothy's life and his mother and grandmother, mm-hmm. he says, from infancy mm-hmm. you knew the Holy Scriptures which made you wise unto salvation. And, and that mm-hmm. term infancy actually can mean from the, from the womb. So even from the womb, Timothy was hearing the scriptures, and those things were making him wise, ready for salvation, that Jesus described as the seed falling in the good soil. So mm. all those things we did in our homes, the living things, we brought the life of God into our home. We raised them on reading and books and uh, good art and music, the things that gave them values for beauty and uh, the, the good things of God. I think all that goodness yeah. enriched the soil in yeah. which when the gospel is falls there, the, it finds life and can grow there. So. Which we so often think with, with parenting or investing in the next generation, we think often of molding specific behaviors. Right. 
um, sort of scripting certain outcomes instead of preparing the soil. So one of the things you guys talk a lot about is relationship, relationship being the foundation of discipleship and thinking about raising children as discipleship. Talk a little bit about that. Again, another 10-hour answer, but um, <laughs> if you study the life of Christ and see that when he was asked, what are the two most important commandments, they were both about love, mm-hmm. loving God, loving people. And so love to your children and to anyone else in your life basically means I will invest time with you. Mm-hmm. I will not be on the computer. I will, I will not be distracted, but I will look into your eyes. And so uh, just especially even from our discipleship background, we realize that the whole basis of influencing people uh, is to invest your time in them. And uh, there are several ways, I think, that we did with our children. Um, We made anchors throughout our week for family times. But as as a mom who had studied the life of Christ as a young missionary, I saw Jesus had words of life in in communicating love. He would say, Peter, you are the rock. And Thomas, you are a man in whom there is no guile. Um, He he lived with them. He basically gave up his life for three years because he knew that they would eventually turn the world upside down. And so I would, um, when my children said, Mommy, I need your time. I had all these little cookie dough balls in the freezer, and um, you know, I would go light a candle in my bedroom, and we would call it tea time because we lived in Europe for a long time. But it could be tea time can be hot chocolate or tea or whatever. And I would say, "Well, let's talk. How are you doing? What's going on?" If I wanted to discipline them, I would build them up and say, "You know, I love how you're doing this, but." Um, but I think that love, uh, accepting their personality. We have a son, Nathan, who is. Uh, ADD, ODD, OCD, oh my goodness. And um, I remember at 15, when I walked into his bedroom, uh, on one, he had painted a mural with our permission on one of the sides of the walls. He had a sword up. He had photography from all over the world. He had music and bands. And I, all of a sudden I went, oh, he's an artist. If God had just told me that when he was, you know, rebelling against all the boxes. And now Nathan is an actor and producer in Hollywood. And uh, so, you know, with Nathan, I would say, what does he need? He's an extrovert. He needed to talk. So I would make time for him and say, okay, Nate, let's go talk. What's been going on? And that's all I had to do. He would talk for an hour and a half. Um, And then my introverts, uh, they needed to be away from the crowd of kids. What's bothering you? What have you been thinking? What have you been Mm -hmm. reading? But I think for Clay and me in the midst of a busy life, realized that our kids did not need activity and constant uh, presence in the life of other people, they needed us because we were going to be the ones who were going to give them words of life and affirm them and love them, fill their cups so that they would want to listen to the God that we loved. That's awesome. Clay, one last thing. What does it look like practically today to bring up your children in the discipline, instruction of the Lord like we read in Ephesians? And you, you know, You talk about nurturing not just being a mother's job, so to speak. Yeah, that was another one of those verses that I hadn't really stepped back and taken a look at closely, but uh, it really describes what I think should be happening in a home. And we hear those words, discipline and instruction. Again, we our first think, okay, I need the plan. I need the specific things to do. Somebody tell me what to do. 
because I want to raise my children in these things. And by the way, it, it, it uh, says, fathers, stop exasperating your children. Rather, raise them and uh, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And uh, I'm going to say uh, that term fathers can be parents because it can be translated that way. It's probably fathers here, but, uh, but particularly for us dads. Um, what I found interesting in this verse is Paul, Paul uses a term uh, when he says uh, bring them up. It's really a term for nurture. Nurture them in the training and instruction, the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's this idea of feeding from. And, uh, uh, and, and I think the picture I see there is that we're to feed our children from the life of the Lord that's in our own hearts and in our own lives. Uh, so dads were you know, this idea of nurture, and by the way, that word's only used one at a time, a few verses earlier, where it tells us that husbands are to nurture their wives in the same way, that same word, uh, to feed them from the life of Christ that's in our own hearts, the life of the Lord. So uh, as I look back on what we did, one thing we did a lot was we had a very verbal family. We would talk about everything. We would have uh, family discussions around scripture passages. We would read them, talk about them, discuss them at length, even when our kids were young, because this is that's the time when you're really uh, uh, making the soil good, as in those young, particularly in those young days. And as they became older kids, we would talk and talk. So I think that verbal aspect of nurturing of bringing the life of Christ into your home is, is a really important part of the organics mm-hmm. of uh, creating that good soil in which the seed of faith is going to fall in your child's heart and begin to grow. Mm. That's awesome. Thank you, guys. If you're like me, you have many moments where you feel like you fall woefully short of this. And I raise my voice. Many nights, as I'm putting my kids to bed, I have to go to them and say, you know, kids, Dad needs the same grace as you need from God. Will you forgive me for getting upset? Will you... And I really think this is one of the best things we can give to our children is a picture of our dependence on Christ. Now, I learned that from my parents. My parents were very quick to come to my sister and I and to say, forgive us. Now, if you know anything about Asian parenting context, that's kind of a no-no. Power distance index in Asian cultures is very high. And so an authority figure never comes low. But my parents did. And I think Part of the message here that we're hearing through Clay and Sally and through the scriptures is the secret, quote-unquote, is not in perfection. The secret is in connecting hearts with the grace of God, is in helping us see that all of us, at whatever age and whatever season in life, never outgrow our need for God's grace. We never outgrow our need for it. And modeling the humility to seek the Lord and to say, It's really fun for for me now to be able to say to Sophia and Nora at their age, eight and six, to say, you know how I'm telling you that you can't obey mommy and daddy without God's grace? Well, I can't be a good dad without God's grace either. So let's both of us pray that God will continue to help us. And all of a sudden, the place of failure actually becomes an opportunity for the gospel to enter. Because that's what Jesus does. 
The place of our failures is exactly where Jesus steps in and says, Right, you have nothing, I am everything. And the foundation of right relationships with those above us and those younger than us, the foundation for right relationships is not moral perfection. The foundation for right relationships with our elders and with our children is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That it's when we understand that Jesus took us and set us in right relationship with our Father in heaven. It's out of that place that love begins to flow. It's out of that place that honor begins to flow. It's out of that place that forgiveness can flow back towards the parents who weren't perfect. It's out of that place that love and patience can flow downward towards our own children. See, I think some of us believe in the back of our minds that God is looking for any reason to dismiss us. I think some of us have been raised with the impression that at the first chance he gets, God's going to kick you out of the family. And I want to say to you this morning, the reason our Old Testament reading was from Isaiah, where God says, can a nursing mother forget her child? Even if she can, the Lord will not forget you. And then he says, I've engraved you in the palm of my hand, and I can't help but think of Jesus centuries later saying to Thomas the doubter, Thomas the one who can't find it in himself to believe, Jesus says, feel these hands. What you see are wounds and scars, but if you look a little closer, what you'll find is your name in these wounds and in these scars. Your name because I am the God that never forgets or abandons 